Let's pray. Heavenly Father, wherever we are gathered this morning, wherever we are listening to what you have to say to us, your Spirit can reach us. So speak, O Lord. And help us to listen. Help us to discern and understand. And build your church and fill the earth with your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the images that the Bible uses for the life of faith is a race. Paul in particular seems to be a bit, been a bit of a sports fan. He drew lots of his analogies from sports, and especially racing, but also sort of boxing and whatever. But... Um, yeah, at the past, I suppose really, I'm not sure if age makes a difference to how we see it, but some, when some people talk about their life as a race, they seem to be envisaging a 100-meter sprint. For others, it's more like a marathon. Maybe another good image is the steeplechase, you know, keeping going even with a whole variety of obstacles in the way. But like all sorts of images, they have their limits. And we in the modern West have come to view things through a very much individualistic lens. It's about our personal relationship with Jesus, about our souls going to heaven. Whereas the Bible narrative spoke a lot more about a community. And in Hebrews, it's talking not just about a community around the world, but down through time across the ages. And perhaps a better image for the race in those circumstances, is the relay. Now you might remember, or you might not, but way back before Christmas, we were slowly making our way through Hebrews 11. It's a much-loved chapter of the Bible. It offers a broad sweep through the story of the Old Testament, meeting all sorts of characters who are described as heroes of faith. You know, by faith they did this, by faith they did that. Some of them were well-known, some of them less so. Some of them make better role models than others, though it's fair to say that they were all flawed to a greater or lesser extent. But together they played a part in the unfolding story of God and his relationship with us. But Hebrews 11, just to remind you of what I was saying back before Christmas, was it doesn't just pop up out of nowhere. Hebrews was written to some early followers of Jesus who were finding life really quite tough. Many of them were tempted to give up. Others already had. And the writer is telling them and us, if it's tough, don't be surprised. That experience is not new. It's not unusual. It's always been like that. It's pretty normal for those who trust God. And here's a whole load of examples. But these people stuck with God and found God true to his word. And so can we. The race of faith is a relay. They ran their leg. And now the baton is with us. 
But there's something about the relay which even some of the best teams have found to their cost. You can be as fast as Usain Bolt, but the key to the race is you've got to get the baton right. The UK team has found this to their cost, but perhaps the US 4 by 100 meter relay team has the least enviable record in this regard. And that's despite the fact that they pretty much always start a major championships as the favourites. But going into the Tokyo Games last year, in seven out of the previous 11 Olympic and World Championships, they had lost out because they messed up the exchange. A relay exchange requires timing. It requires trust and chemistry. You've got a certain zone in which you're allowed to pass the baton on. If you pass it on too early, you're disqualified. If you pass it on too late, you're disqualified. And in that range, each person has to know where the next person is going to feel comfortable making the exchange. They want to know whether they want you to hand it to them coming down like that, or whether they, you want them to hand, they want you to hand it to them coming up like that. They, they, they will, you want to know how high will the person's hand be when they come to receive it? How quickly the outgoing runner is likely to accelerate? So many variables. And in many ways, it's easier at lower-level athletics because teams do this week in, week out. They get to know each other, and they actually get it wrong less often. But at the top level, major international teams will only come together for a few days. And hence, they make more mistakes, especially when you add in the fact that they are doing it at greater speed and that even the slightest bit of hesitation will finish them. So they go for broke. I mean, if you just don't quite get that exchange 100% right at a lower level, and you've got a fast runner, you'll have a chance to make it up. At an elite level, you're done. And so in Beijing 2008, a US runner dropped the baton. In 2009, in the World Championship, they exchanged it too early, which is virtually unheard of. In 2015... Yeah, balance things out, they pass it on too late. In 2011, one of their runners ran into another runner in an opposing team and fell over. And as New York Magazine, The Intelligent, put it, if there's a way to blow a baton exchange, the US 4 by 100 meter relay team has done it. And they are the best of the best. which it might be said, can't be said, for those mentioned in Hebrews 11. In today's short section, we briefly encounter five significant Old Testament characters, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and Moses. And there are a few things which link their story. They're all stories about trust in God, belief in a promise, even as they stared in the face of death. 
And I spent some time talking about Abraham and the last time I spent talking about Hebrews back in November. And I've dealt at great length with the story of Abraham and Isaac before. If you're interested, I will put the links in the various places where you can find today's sermon because I'm not really going to spend time on that today. And next time I want to spend a bit more time on Moses. But this morning I want to focus on the middle three, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. But before I go there, the Abraham and Moses stories, which bookend this section, have a sort of similarity to them. They're about parents, in quite extreme ways, placing their trust in God for the future and trusting God with their children. The Abraham-Isaac story is one of the darkest, most mysterious stories in the Bible. I've got a friend who once told me that he's got lots of reasons why he's an atheist, but even if he didn't have, this one story would have been enough. And if you don't know the story, it's found in Genesis 22. Abraham is told to go to a mountain and sacrifice his son Isaac. And the writer of Hebrews doesn't show much interest in why God would ask such a thing or the morality of it, even though the rest of the Old Testament goes to great lengths to highlight that God's not that kind of God. But everything that God had promised to Abraham was wrapped up in Isaac, and in particular in Isaac staying alive. God had told Abraham that it was through Isaac that God would fulfill the promise that Lynn was talking to you last week in the YouTube service about blessing Abraham and through him and his descendants, blessing the whole world. Without Isaac, Abraham's story hits the buffers before he's even left the station. And if Abraham had been operating from a purely human point of view, this would have been the unraveling or surrendering of this whole story. But it seems that Abraham viewed it all through a different lens, through the lens of faith. And in Genesis, it seems Abraham doesn't believe that God's going to actually make him go through with this. He tells his servant to wait whilst he and Isaac go to worship. And then we, that's both of them, will return to you. When Isaac said, Dad, we've got the fire in the wood. Where's the lamb? Abraham says, oh, God will provide that. The writer of Hebrews goes farther, saying that Abraham believed that God would keep his promises, even if it meant he had to bring Isaac back from the dead. But however we view it, Abraham was staking everything on God being true to his word, and whatever happened, he could still bring it to pass. Much the same as Moses' parents were when they placed him in a basket on the Nile. Moses had been born in Egypt at the time of an edict that all Hebrew boys were to be killed at birth. But somehow his parents saw something unique about their son that empowered them to defy the order of the most powerful man in the land. And they hid Moses for three months. But they reached a point where they couldn't do it anymore. It was a huge risk they took, placing him in a basket on the Nile trusting that if God did have great plans for his life, God would make a way for it to happen. And God did. And how? God used Pharaoh's own household against him to preserve Moses and even returned Moses to his own mother in the process. And in those early chapters of Genesis, there's a lot of dark, satirical comedy if you know where to look for it. 
But in between, there are three other stories, and they share something else in common. Each of these three stories are about characters who lived to a very old age. But Hebrews only makes mention of something they did at the end of their lives. Which is odd, because many of the stories are, uh, we have uh, of heroes, they're about choices they make at the pinnacle of their lives. They, these three are included not because of anything they did, but because of what they passed on. We pick it up at verse 20. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions concerning the burial of his bones. A few verses before we started today, if, you had, if we had started a bit earlier, we would have also read, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting they were foreigners and strangers on earth. And that is certainly true of these three. The book of Genesis is about a promise. It's about a promise of nation, land, and blessing. But by the end of Genesis... How many of the three have they got? None. Isaac ended his days as a nomad. Jacob was an exile. Joseph, yeah, he made a life for himself, but he was still a stranger in a strange land. They still carried the faith that the promise would come true because they knew they were part of a story that was bigger than them or their lives. They may not see it come to completion, but they saw themselves as a link in the chain. Their lives were part of the larger relay of faith. But as I've suggested already, these people were far from perfect. They were a right dysfunctional lot. Isaac and Rebecca had twin boys, Jacob and Esau. But from birth, literally from birth, they were a relational disaster waiting to happen. And Isaac and Rebecca didn't help matters. Isaac clearly favored Esau. Esau was a man's man. Rebecca preferred Jacob. And they actually used the boys to plot against one another. The only parenting manual that Isaac and Rebecca would have made it into was one that was started off with the headline, How Not To. And 
And it's odd that Hebrews says Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau. Because if you read Genesis, it looks like he only blessed Jacob, and not by deception, and Esau got a bum deal. And it actually caused Jacob to flee for his life, lest his brother Esau kill him. Now let's remember, this is the family who are supposed to bless the whole world. And they're fleeing from each other for their lives. I mean, I've had some fights with my brother. Okay, I do live in another country, but it's not because I'm frightened of him. And yet later, actually, we do see that Esau was blessed. Later, Jacob wants to return home. He's worried about how his brother's going to react. And so he splits up the traveling party so that if one of them gets attacked, the others can escape. Nice family. Jacob sends gifts ahead to soften Esau up. And on the way, he's told, your brother's coming to meet you. And he's got 400 men with him. Which doesn't really sound like the greatest of signs, does it? But when he gets there, he's welcomed with an embrace. It's reminiscent, actually, of the prodigal son story in a way. And Esau says, what's with all the gifts? I don't need your stuff. I'm doing well. And they actually have to go and live in different places, purely because the land's not big enough to support their combined inheritance. Esau was blessed in time. But Christianity traces its story through Jacob. And Jacob, he's not a very good guy. His name literally means deceiver. Imagine that, you know, you call one of your kids con man. And there's not a lot positive can be said about his story. But the blessing was passed on to him. Because God's blessings come not because we deserve them, but because we need them. Now, having been raised in a family which was torn apart by favoritism, you might have thought Jacob would have wanted to do stuff differently. But no. His family are even worse. He marries two sisters and favors one of them over the other. And he favors one son, Joseph, over another. So much so that his brothers first decide to kill Joseph and then decide, nah, that's a bit harsh. So they sell him into slavery instead because that's so much more brotherly. And we often portray Joseph as some kind of hero. But the Bible story is a lot more nuanced than that. The games Joseph plays with his brothers when they come down to Egypt might be understandable, but they're not heroic. And when Joseph comes to power as PM of Egypt, he uses his powers in, way, in ways which the rest of the Old Testament would say, would say kings were abusing the power. Kings would be criticized for behaving like this. 
He left people destitute in exchange for food. But Jacob thought he'd lost his son Joseph forever. Only the story ends with Joseph being reunited with his father and of Jacob blessing Joseph's sons. And in one final twist, he too blesses Joseph's younger son more than he blesses the elder. Joseph, he's a more curious one. You see, it's, in some ways it's easier to have a faith when things aren't going well. To pray more when you need God to come through for you. I'm not necessarily saying it's easy, but it's easier when you have no choice but to rely on God. The Victorian writer Thomas Carlyle once said, for every 100 people who could withstand adversity, there's only one who could withstand prosperity. It's one thing to be looking to God to help you when it's all going wrong. It's another thing to look for God when it's all just going so well. Joseph had the faith to look to the future when he was at the top of his game, when, when things just seemed to be at the top of the game for Israel. When Joseph spoke about the Exodus and gave instructions about his bones, there wasn't a single person who was thinking of moving out. Why would we leave? It's great here. Have you seen Canaan? It would have been very easy to lose sight of the promise. But Joseph kept his eyes fixed on the promise. His bones were to be a reminder of that promise. We don't belong here. It might be good, but there's something more for us. Oh, these people were far from perfect. The writer of Hebrews doesn't actually draw on key instances in their prime. Some of them were better than others, but you know, some of them had a real lot that you wouldn't say, go and do that, do that likewise about. But they kept passing the baton on. Because that has always been the story of the people of faith. Let's be honest. Church history has its flaws. We've very rarely, if ever, been the best of the best. Quite often the church hasn't even, I'm not just talking about us as a local church, but the church nationally, globally, it's not even been the best church it could be. But in the relay, the best of the best don't always get the baton round. There's an old legend about what happened as Jesus was welcomed back into heaven. You know, after the ascension, he was greeted by the angels, but then they caught a glimpse of the scars in his hands, his feet, his forehead where he'd been pierced by the thorns. And Gabriel says, 
It must have been terrible what you went through down there to rescue the world. But hey, at least now the whole world knows how much God loves them. Jesus says, nah, not the whole world. There's just a few of them. You'd like them, you know, there's Peter, James, John, Mary. It's actually quite a few Marys now to think about it. There's Joanna, there's Thomas. Just a few, says the angels. How then is the rest of the world going to get to know? Oh, well, they're going to tell people who will tell people who will tell people. And it'll just kind of spread. Word of mouth sort of thing. But, 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 what if they don't? What if they just stop passing it on? What's plan B? Plan B, said Jesus. I'm not sure what they mean. There's no plan B. I'm trusting them. The race of faith is a relay. And it only keeps going if the baton keeps getting passed on. And it's through an imperfect body known as the church that God is continuing the story of the blessing which was passed down through Isaac to Jacob to Joseph all the way down to us. The story we are part of is way bigger than us. The race of faith is a relay. And for now, the baton is with us. What are we passing on to the next generation? How ready are we to hand on the baton? Or for those of us who are younger, how ready and willing are you to take it up? I'll be honest and say that there are some of you who really inspire me. And one of the reasons for that is that at least implicitly, you have that sense that the race of faith is a relay. That you run your leg with a view not to what happens for the rest of your life, but for those who will come after you. That you're thinking in terms of what happens after you're gone. And in fairness, some of you will admit that that doesn't require thinking that far ahead. But how will we run our leg? Will we consider our leg to be the whole race? Or will we run in such a way as to give those running the next one the best of starts? We're going to make mistakes. We're human. But in the relay of faith, because of grace, 
Failure is not fatal or final. And we know this because we stand in the shadow of people who did great things, but we also stand in the shadow of people who made mistakes. And boy, did they make mistakes. But somehow God kept taking his purposes forward despite those mistakes. In fact, and we move into serious metaphor mixing here, God most often wove those mistakes into the tapestry he's creating. He's the author and the finisher of the story. What mattered was that they carried the baton and handed it on. And ultimately, they entrusted what they had to God and passed it on. And that the next generation took it. And now the baton is in our hands. Some of us are closer to the end of our leg than others. But the baton is in our hands. May we run our leg of the race, giving it our all. But may we run it looking on to Jesus. May we run it knowing the story we are part of is way bigger than us. And may we run it in such a way that we pass it on to the next generation, ready to join the crowd of witnesses and cheering them on in the next part of God's story. Grace and peace be with you. Amen.